0: Hello everyone, my name is Dirit Ladi. I'm a law professor at the University of Pretoria um, and a member of the International Law Commission, um, and today I'm very happy to speak to all of you um, about the African Union and its role in the maintenance of international peace and security. Uh, the subject of international peace and security is obviously um, one that we're all talking about in light of everything that's happening um, these days. And we all know that the United Nations, and in particular the UN Security Council, um, has the primary role for the maintenance of international peace and security. Yet we also know that other entities, uh, including NATO, uh, but also regional entities and regional organizations like the African Union, I mean, even sub regional organizations and entities like ECOWAS, for example, and SADC, um, play also an important role um, in the maintenance of international peace and security. So if you think back to just a couple of months ago, when ECOWAS, um, in fact, intervened militarily in Gambia in order to restore international peace and security, again, so that's an example of um, the role that even a sub-regional organization can play in the maintenance of international peace and security. And certainly the African Union um, has been involved in a number of conflicts throughout um, the African continent and in trying to sort of find solutions to those conflicts. Uh, perhaps its most successful intervention um, and role in the maintenance of international peace and security on the continent has been its role with respect to Somalia, um, which now by all accounts um, is a country that, that, that was on the brink of, um, of disruption and that's now finding its feet again, thanks in large part to the leadership role. That the African Union has played. But it's not only in that um, particular situation. So it's played a role in Sudan, um, in South Sudan. It's played also some role, believe it or not, in Libya, um, uh, in Burundi, and so on. And we'll talk about at least some of these in the course of the lecture. However, the African Union, in in, um, playing the role that it wants to play, um, faces a number of challenges. And so there are a number of hurdles to the role and its mandate in respect of the maintenance of international peace and security. So one of those roles, and perhaps the most obvious one for um, an organization like the African Union um, is resources. And this this relates to both uh, human resources but also, most importantly, financial and economic resources. And we sort of saw this in particular with respect to Somalia, which as I've said just earlier, is uh, an example of the AU's most successful intervention and, and role in sort of mediating um, and finding a lasting solution to a, uh, a problem that seemed really intractable. Um, so, here you had um, the African Union playing a leadership role with, for example, uh, the establishment of AMISOM, um, which is a peacekeeping uh, mission of the African Union. But each time after um, the African Union takes a particular decision about what AMISOM requires, uh, to activate that also required a resolution of the UN Security Council principally for financial reasons because it was um, uh, the United Nations that bore um, at least a large percentage of the budget um, for, for that peacekeeping mission. So you see how the African Union has a role but even in its role where it plays a primary role it's still dependent on um, financial injection from the United Nations and so financial support. Um, it's also um, uh, constrained sometimes by uh, its mandate and questions about politics and mandate. Um, so a typical example here would be um, in re- relation to the situation in Libya. So in Libya, you had one of two interesting things happening at the same time. So you had the Security Council, which was seized on the matter um, and taking very decisive action. As you know, they adopted resolution 1970 relating to... Um, to uh, prosecution, uh, uh, a month or two later adopted Resolution 1973, what is less known perhaps is that at the same time that all of this was happening, the African Union had actually established um, a high-level committee um, of African leaders that was engaging between the warring parties. Um, And indeed, on the eve of adoption of Resolution 1973, um, the high-level committee had um, at least proclaimed that they had managed to find a deal um, and had managed to find agreement between the warring parties. Now, Of course, we will never know precisely what that deal was because the organ with a principal mandate, with a principal function, that is, the UN Security Council, decided to go another route. So again, here you see the African Union has a a role to play. Um, It seems it has a mandate. but there are mandate limitations and mandate restrictions because another body has a greater mandate um, than it has. Uh, So so that's also a constraint that we need to to think about when we're thinking about the role that the the African Union um, and its organs might play with respect to the maintenance of international peace and security on the African continent. Um, Thirdly, there are also structural and political hurdles. Um, And again, a typical example of this was recently in Burundi. So in Burundi, you might remember, um, the president decided to uh, extend his term um, and run for a third term, which was against the Constitution. Um, And the African Union chair commission, or the the, the chairperson of the commission, um, in consultation with the Peace and Security Council, decided that the African Union would intervene militarily if that were to take place. Um, Interestingly, the AU summit itself decided not to follow this recommendation and decided it would not intervene militarily. So here you see, because of structural issues which we will discuss, sometimes the African Union is not able to take the types of decisions that might be necessary for the maintenance of international peace and security. So with this in mind, Today's lecture will basically look at all of these things um, um, and provide you with an overview of the legal and structural um, issues relating to Africa's role um, and the African Union's role in the maintenance of international peace and security. Um, And the lecture will be divided into three parts. So the first part will be, Um, the architectural nuts and bolts, if you like, of the AU system. So what are the organs? What are the mandates of the various organs? How do they interact? And so on and so on and so on. Um, The second uh, part of the lecture will be um, the particular mandate. So where does the African Union get its mandate? What are the limitations on that mandate? Um, The third part of the lecture would then, and this flows from the second one, would, would then focus on the particular relationship between the African Union organs relate um, responsible for the maintenance of international peace and security on the continent um, and the UN Security Council. So, um, I guess to start off with the first part of the lecture, uh, the best starting place is to sort of look at the... Um, Um, the various organs of the the African Union um, and sort of look at the particular role that they might play in the maintenance of international peace and security and for this I will ask you then to have a look with me um, at Article 5 of the African Union um, Constitutive Act and if you look at Article 5 of the African Union Constitutive Act what you will find is you will find a list of organs of um, the African Union. So the first one on that list is uh, the assembly of the Union, Uh, and essentially the assembly is, well, it's the assembly of heads of state and government, so it is made up of the presidents and prime ministers um, of the various members of the African Union. Um, The assembly is the highest decision-making body um, in the African Union, Um, so essentially the most important decisions have to be taken by the assembly. It has the power to adopt uh, treaties, it has the power to adopt policies, um, it has the, the power, as we will see in a minute, to, uh, to, to establish other organs um, of the African Union. It has the power to sanction members who don't comply, including members who, who um, are a threat to peace and security on the African continent. Um, so that's the Assembly. The second very important organ that you find in Article 51 um, of the Constitutive Act is the Executive Council, and the Executive Council is sort of the body right below the the uh, the Summit, um, the Assembly in the sense that it makes recommendations to the Summit. So most of the decisions, most not all, but most of the decisions that are adopted by the Assembly are adopted on the basis of recommendations that come from um, the Executive Council, um, and the Executive Council is made up principally, in fact, no, it, it's made up exclusively of foreign ministers of the various um, members of the, the organization. The next one that you find on the list is the Pan-African Parliament. The Pan-African Parliament doesn't play such an important role, um, it, in fact, it doesn't play a, a, um, a particularly distinct role, uh, but it's still worthwhile to, to be aware that there is the, the, the Pan-African Parliament which has its seat in Johannesburg. Um, The fourth organ, and this one is very interesting, is the Court of Justice. And what makes the Court of Justice interesting is that it exists, but also doesn't exist. Um, It exists because what what this provision refers to is it refers to a court that was conceived even before the AU. And it was supposed to be a court that dealt with interstate issues, and I suppose interstate issues might also relate to peace and security matters, but principally trade-related matters. Um, Before it was even established, before there was even a treaty um, establishing it, um, the African Union Assembly, again, the highest decision-making body, took a decision to merge it, to merge this concept, with an existing court namely um, the African Court on Human and People's Rights, and what you then had was a treaty uh, merging these two courts uh, into the African Court of Justice and Human Rights. Now this treaty never entered into force. Before it entered into force there was yet another amendment in 2014 um, and this relates directly to peace and security matters um, because a third chamber was added. Right, and So you have the first chamber which is the justice chamber, which would deal with interstate disputes, which conceivably might also include peace and security related matters. Then you would have a second chamber which would deal with human rights issues, so where individuals or entities um, complain about human rights violations in their country. Then you would have a third chamber, and this third chamber would deal with criminal matters. Right. So the core crimes that we find in the Rome Statute are included here. Uh, these are war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, um, and of course the crime of aggression, which deals very much directly with uh, international peace and security. There are other crimes, so it includes also um, what one might call sort of transnational crimes, um, but in the whole, the fact that it deals with these, uh, um, these particular crimes um, is an illustration of the fact that this court would then also deal with um, Peace and security matter. And then the fifth organ that you find is the commission. And the commission is very important. It's um The commission is kind of like this. No, it's not kind of. It is the secretariat of the African Union. So in as much as you have a UN secretariat, um, you also have an AU secretariat, which is referred to as a commission. And of course, um, in theory, secretariats don't play particularly important roles with respect to policy, but that's only in theory. I mean, I think in practice, uh, international organizations have involved and secretariats play a particularly important role, and it's certainly true of the African Union Commission. More so because, in the African Union Commission, um, the role of the Commission in policy making um, is actually included in the Constitutive Act um, and the various um, uh, um, instruments that we will look at, so that it's its conduct and its role in peace and security matters is not only by virtue of practice, it's also by virtue of the instrument. Um, And then there's the Permanent Representative Committee, and the Permanent Representative Committee is really just um, a committee of um, the ambassadors of members of the African Union stationed in Addis Ababa, right? So they meet um, and they are also sort of a pathway, and I'll just show you in a little bit sort of the pathway for decision-making. Uh, you then have, the, and this is the f- final organ that's that, that's relevant for peace and security, you then have the specialized technical committees. And the specialized technical committees are committees of different subject areas, um, and they would meet first at expert level, and then they would meet at minister level, right? So the two committees that would be particularly relevant for peace and security matters would be, in fact, what's interesting is that both of them are not provided for in the AU Constitutive Act. They were established subsequently by the summit, um, the Assembly of Heads of State. Um, these are the STC, or the, the Specialized Technical Committee on Justice and Law. Right? And so obviously, a lot of legal issues um, flow from peace and security um, issues, and the second one, which is even more directly relevant, um, is the Specialized Technical Committee on Defense. Right? So the, the Specialized Technical Committee on Defense and Security um, would meet to discuss various peace and security-related issues. First, they would meet at expert level, which is to say the officials and the bureaucrats, and subsequent to that, the final decisions of the Specialized Technical Committees would then be made by the Ministers for Defense, Right. particularly interesting. Um, one thing you, well, so, so let me just say a couple of things uh, in terms of the decision-making process then to try to link all of these together. Um, uh, so, so as a rule, a decision would be, or a discussion on an issue would take place in a specialized technical committee, and then a decision would be made by, by the ministers of that specialized technical committee. So in our case, um, the specialized technical committee on defense, for example, Once that decision is made, it would then be transmitted or transferred to the permanent representative committee, which is very interesting because it means now the ambassadors uh, are the bosses of the ministers, because then they would then look at this decision, um, um, deliberate on the decision, and then the decision would be transmitted through the commission, of course, to the executive council. The Executive Council would then look at the report of the PRC, then it would make a decision, and this decision would eventually go to the summit, and so the final decision would then be made by the summit. But this is more or less sort of how the decision-making processes within the African Union um, would be made. What's interesting, if again you look at Article 5.1 of the AU Constitutive Act, what's interesting, one thing that you do not find is you do not find referred to the equivalent of what we might call the UN Security Council. So nowhere in that list do we find the African Union Security Council or the African Union Peace and Security Council. But if you look closer at Article 5, you will see Article 5, Paragraph 2, and Article 5, Paragraph 2 provides that other organs that the Assembly may decide to establish. So the organs of the African Union shall be that list and other organs that the African Union um, might, um, might, might establish. Um, the AU Peace and Security Council was so established by the African Union Summit in 2002, note which is the same year, of course, or uh, as the um, uh, the same year as the um, the AU Constitutive Act. So immediately, the African Union heads of um, uh, heads of state and government established um, or adopted a treaty, uh, which is the protocol establishing the African Union Peace and Security Council. Uh, It's established as a standing decision-making organ for the prevention, management, and resolution of conflict. And this phrase is very important because essentially what it's saying is very much like the the, the UN Security Council, is that it meets throughout the year. So the assembly of the African Union, um, this highest making decision um, body, meets twice a year. It meets in January, and then it meets again in June or July. So so either the end of January, beginning of February, or the end of June, beginning of July. Uh, These are the the meeting times. But the AU Peace and Security Council meets throughout the year, so it is a standing body to enable it, of course, to make rapid decisions when rapid decisions have to be made. Um, And this is all good and well in theory, but we'll see sort of how it works um, in practice. Um, So the composition. Let's start with the composition of the AU Peace and Security Council. it's in some sense very similar to the UN Security Council because it's composed of 15 members. Um, there is one important difference, um, and one important difference that I'm very happy about. I um, mean, that important difference is that there are no permanent members in theory, right? So, in theory, there are no permanent members. It's composed of 15 members. Um, 10 members are elected for a period of two years, and 5 members are elected for a period of three years. What is interesting is that um, the protocol establishing the AU Peace and Security Council permits immediate re-election, and there is no limitation on how often you can be immediately re-elected. So in theory, as I said, um, there are no permanent members. But in practice, there is one permanent member, and that is Nigeria. And the reason why this happens is because, <clears throat> um, in terms of the composition of the African Union, um, uh, there are reserve seats for the southern region, there are reserve seats for the, um, the eastern sub-region, reserve seats for the, uh, the western sub-region, reserve seats for the, um, the central region, and of course for the northern region. There is an arrangement, an implicit agreement, where however you want to call it, in the West, that Nigeria will always occupy one of those seats. So it's not a decision of the African Union, it's a decision of that particular region. In terms of its procedures, if you look at Article 8 um, um, of the the AU Peace and Security Council um, statute, uh, or protocol. Um, it meets at three levels, and this is important for the decision-making process and also, in a sense, sort of some of the difficulties that arise. So it meets at the (coughs) PRC level, it meets at the um, Executive Council level, and it meets at the Summit level. What's important to note is that at any one of these levels that it meets, the decision that comes out is a decision of the AUP and Security Council. It's not the decision of the AU Peace and Security Council permanent representatives, it's the decision of the AU Peace and Security Council, which means that it has the same um, standing, the same status. right? So whether it's the ambassadors or the heads of state of government, the status of the decision is exactly the same. The the protocol establishing the AU Peace and Security Council also has a very important role for the chairperson of the commission. And this we find in Article 7.1, right? So if you look at Article 7.1 of the um, the, um, uh, protocol establishing the AU Peace and Security Council, um, you find that it lists a number of things that the AU Peace and Security Council may do. So it lists the powers of the AU Peace and Security Council. But Paragraph 1 says in conjunction with the chairperson of the Commission. So it's almost like saying, if we were to think about the United Nations, it would be the UN Security Council, in conjunction with the Secretary General, may do the following. Now, you won't find that in the UN Charter, right? So the powers of the UN Security Council are its powers and its powers alone. Uh, But in Article 7, you see a particular role that is carved out in particular for um, the Commission. And we don't have to look at those powers just yet. We'll look at those powers when we get to the mandate, um, if you look at Article 10 of the, uh, if you look at Article 10 of the Protocol establishing the AU Peace and Security Council, um, it also then has the role of the chairperson of the commission and the role of the chairperson of the commission. Um, so Article 10 says the chairperson of the commission shall, under the under the authority of the Peace and Security Council, and in consultation with all parties involved in a conflict. Deploy efforts and take all initiatives deemed appropriate, which is very interesting, right? So it it gives the the the, uh, the head of the secretariat, the chairperson of the commission, this immense power to make certain decisions. Now, true, it does say under the authority of the Peace and Security Council, um, um, and also it does say in consultation. But these are still immense powers. Um, and in fact, the Burundi case that I sort of described for you earlier was essentially a decision by the, um, uh, the AU chair, or rather the chair of the commission, there's a difference between the AU chair and the chair of the commission, but the chair of the commission uh, in consultation with um, the AU Peace and Security Council making this decision. So what these the, these provisions do is they raise lots of interesting issues, first about the relationship between the AU Peace and Security Council itself on the one hand and the Assembly of Heads of State and Government on the other hand what precisely is the relationship? who is the boss here? Um, I think if we think about the UN uh, the boss in peace and security matters would be clear it 's not so clear with respect to um, um, with respect to um, Um, the African Union and the particular architectural structure that's built. It also raises interesting questions about the relationship between um, these organs so the AU Peace and Security Council and the Assembly of Heads of State on one side versus the Commission on the other side and the chairperson of the Commission exactly again who's the boss here and we sort of saw this playing out in the Burundi case. I think ultimately at least in terms of process um, and decision making um, the final outcome that is to leave the actual decision to the Assembly was the correct one. Right? Um, there is also and you won't find this in in the organs that are established by, uh, by uh, the AU Constitutive Act, uh, there's also provision made for something called the African Standby Force and the African Standby Force is essentially a, a military um, um, uh, availability of member states, so the African Union Summit, the African Union Peace and Security Council would have at its beck and call um, uh, the military of its member state available for early deployment. Right? This hasn't yet, um, uh, much like in the United Nations, because something similar is provided for um, under the UN Charter, but it hasn't come to fruition, and again, it hasn't come to fruition here um, in the African Union. But although it hasn't yet been institutionalized, it's referred to a lot, right? So, so in the African Union's um, principal policy document, uh, which is Agenda 2063, which has sort of has these these values, including silencing the gun by 2021, which is the the objective and the 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 final well the the hope that by twenty twenty one the content will know peace. There's a lot of reference to the African Standby Force, and yet it hasn't yet come into fruition. What what has been, I don't want to say established by the African Union, but at least endorsed, is something called the African Capacity for Immediate um, Response to Crisis, um, and it's it was it was I guess established or endorsed through an AU decision. Um, and although it was done through an AU decision, and, and although it is seen, even in, its, in its, um, the, the decision establishing it, as a sort of a stopgap while we're waiting for the African standby force, it's actually not an AU entity, and it's actually not an AU organ, um, it is, if you like, a sort of a coalition of the willing which is led by South Africa and includes a number of countries like uh, Angola, Algeria, Egypt, Niger, Senegal, Namibia, and so on. Um, There are some states that uh, are opposed to it. So um, uh, Nigeria is very suspicious of it, and so is Kenya, and so on. So it's not an AU organ, but it has been endorsed by the AU um, Summit. And the idea was that while we're building the African standby force, we must have something that enables us in the meantime to Immediately deploy these coalition. Um, uh, um, of the willing. Um, it was formed in 2012 or 2013. Um, it has yet to be deployed, so maybe it's suffering the so. Um, so even though it, it's been established, um, it, it's suffering the same um, fate, if you like, as the African Standby Force. So that's more or less sort of the nuts and bolts of um, the AU peace and security. A mechanism. Um, and now I want to sort of look a little bit at the, the African Union's mandate for peace and security, and in particular whether it has its mandate, whether uh, or not it can have a mandate. I guess the first starting point in thinking about this question is to ask whether in the first place it can have a mandate um, because of um, the UN Charter's um, Placement of the UN Security Council, sort of above all else, when it comes to UN, because um, when, it, when it comes to the maintenance of international peace and security, um, of course the answer to that question is simple, right? So we don't have to spend much time on it. Is that if you look at the UN Charter itself, in Article Twenty Four, it says that um, the UN Security Council has the primary. Doesn't say it has the exclusive, and it doesn't say it has the sole. It says it has the primary, which suggests. Um, that other entities can also have a role. Um, What's more difficult, though, is even if you accept that other entities, including regional organizations like the African Union, can have a role in the maintenance of international peace and security, um, the question arises whether they can have um, a role in perhaps the most critical um, element of the maintenance of international peace and security, and that is uh, mobilization of forces to intervene militarily in a country, right? So if you think about Article Two Four of the UN Charter, which prohibits the use of force, um, and it is regarded as a norm of use Kogan's, um, creating only two exceptions, right? So it creates only two exceptions, um, at, at least that are doctrinally accepted, I would say, um, namely the use of force in self-defense, um, or a UN Security Council authorization, um, uh, it raises the question: How? And you will see that the the African Union has reserved for, itso- for itself the right to intervene militarily under certain circumstances. So, the fact that under the charter and under doctrine, as we accept it, uh, there are only two exceptions: self-defense and um, authorization by the UN Security Council, raises the question: How this is possible? Right? How it is? that the African Union can reserve for itself the right to intervene, um, and it's a question that we will look at in just a little bit. Um, in, at the beginning, it's useful to sort of try to find where the African Union's mandate for um, international peace and security or the maintenance of international peace and security comes from. Um, and for this, it's, it's useful to look at um, uh, the purposes and principles of the African Union. You will find the purposes in Article 3. Right? Um, and Article three contains the objectives, and it lists a number of objectives of the African Union. What is interesting is that if you look at these objectives, well, so let me take a couple of steps back and say, if you take a copy of the UN Charter and you turn to the purposes of, so which is the equivalent provision, the purposes, you find that there is a um, an almost obsession. With peace and security that makes it very clear that this is an important objective, an important element. This is perhaps even the very reason for the existence of um, of uh, um, the United Nations. If you look at the equivalent provision, Article 3 um, of the AU Constitutive Act, you don't get that sense, right? So there's all kinds of other things, right, if you look at it. There's, um, there seems to be more an inclination towards um, things like good governance, things like human rights, uh, things like economic growth, economic development. That seems to be um, the objective. Of course, you might say, and you'll be correct if you say this, but yes, those things are very important for the maintenance of international peace and security. So there's an interconnectedness, right? There's an interconnectedness. If you have a state which, um, which um, uh, is economically well-developed, which respect human rights, in which there's good governance. Um, there is less likely to be peace and security issues or threats to international peace and security. It's more likely to be stable so that it makes sense um, that, that even if you're concerned with the maintenance of international peace and security, the objectives might spell out these other things. And in fact, this thinking is almost reflected I mean, I, I don't know if it was on purpose, but it's almost reflected in the structure of the AU Constitutive Act, because Article 3 sets out the objective, right? The objective, the purposes. This is ultimately the kind of continent that we want to establish, a continent that that uh, that respects human rights, a continent that... Um, you know that is economically developed a continent that, that has good governance systems etc etc etc. How do we do this? And how do we do this? Takes you to Article Four, which is the principle. And if you look at the principles, um, there's very much uh, a significant bias in Principle Four. Sorry, um, in Article Four, which contains the principles of the Union, there is great bias towards peace and security matters. So there isn't a great bias in the objective. But there's a great bias towards peace and security matters um, in Article 4. right? So um, I also mentioned earlier, of course, um, um, Agenda 2061, which takes all of these principles and then says on the basis of these principles, we want to make sure that we have a peaceful continent um, by 2021. And this peaceful continent would enable us to meet the objectives that we've set out, the developmental objectives that we've set out in Agenda 2061 by the year 2061, right? Um, in the um, the protocol establishing the AU Peace and Security Council, obviously there there is much greater um, uh, bias towards um, um, the maintenance of international peace and security. So, if you look at, for example, um, Article three, it sets out um, the objectives of the AU Peace and Security Council and bar none, all of them are related to the maintenance of international peace and security. Uh, Article 4 sets out the principles, that is, this is how we're going to achieve these objectives. Um, And then also, of course, um, they also relate very much to the um, um, maintenance of international peace and security. Just on Article 3E, if you notice, I want to say a couple of things about um, some of the particular objectives. So Article 3E... Um, provides uh, that one of the objectives of the African Union Peace and Security Council is the non-aggression and common defense, right? What is interesting is that this particular objective and principle has been been instrumentalized, if you like. So the AU Assembly has since adopted the non-aggression and common defense pact to give effect to that particular principle. So again, uh, if you look at Article 3F, um, again, there's an objective. The objective is to promote and encourage democratic practice. So again, so the idea that um, this is related to the maintenance of international peace and security, and how does the the AU seek to achieve this particular objective, it has adopted the AU Charter on Democracy, Elections, and Good Governance. Um, Article 4C, so under the principles, um, it speaks about sort of rule of law, fundamental human rights, and I've already talked about the court structures. So you see how different objectives and principles the African Union has gone about to try to materialize them by um, um, establishing um, establishing, uh, or adopting particular treaties that are aimed at giving effect to these. But perhaps the most far-reaching rule Um, in the African Union's um, uh, instruments which relate to the maintenance of international peace and security is Article 4H of the Constitutive Act, uh, which is also, by the way, contained um, in the Protocol Establishing the AU Peace and Security Council. And Article 4H reads, if I may, that the Union shall function in accordance with the following principle, and 4H says the right of the Union to intervene in a member state pursuant to a decision of the Assembly in respect of grave circumstances, namely war crimes, genocide, and crimes against humanity. Um, Of course 4J also provides for a right to intervention but that's different um, uh, because that is a right of uh, a member state to request the African Union to intervene. But 4H is the right of the Union to intervene, presumably, without the consent of um, the state in question. So, of course, the question that arises is whether this is at all consistent with um, uh, a right that is reserved for the UN Security Council under the United Nations Charter, which takes us to the to the, to the third part of our lecture, namely the relationship between the African Union institutions and the United Nations um, Security Council. So as a starting point, it would be useful, I think, to, to say as an empirical point, um, you would understand the African Union's insistence that it should have a greater role in the maintenance of peace and security on the continent and even be allowed to intervene as an empirical point. Uh, Because after all, more than 75% of the agenda items on the UN Security Council um, relate to the continent, right? Um, And it's 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 the AU's member states that are most directly affected by the threat to peace and security and the lack of stability on the continent. So, in other words, it has the greatest interest. And if it has the greatest interest, it would argue it should play the greatest role. Bear in mind these are empirical normative. Points. These are not legal points. So, if the legal, um, so if the legal uh, hurdle remains, then the legal hurdle remains regardless of what normative point you might make. Um, th- the second normative point that might be made is well, um, the African Union and its member states are closer geographically in terms of proximity to the conflict and are thus able to understand it better. This greater understanding perhaps will allow the African Union and its entities to be able to make a much better contribution to the maintenance of international peace and security on the continent. And in fact, this is more or less sort of the reasoning that led to the partnership between the UN Security Council and the African Union with respect to Somalia, right? It was, you are closer. We will be led by you. Now, this is the UN Security Council speaking. You tell us what you need and we will provide, right? So you saw this leadership. But the legal question still remains. Um, the legal question still remains. The legal question is, well, under the UN Charter, the use of force is prohibited except if it's a case of self-defense or there's an authorization by the, by the UN Security Council. A couple of theories can be advanced, and all theories that can be advanced have their holes and weaknesses, right? So the one theory that can be advanced is, well, um, Article 4-H is a treaty rule. Right? So Article 4-H is a treaty rule, and as such... Member states of the African Union have voluntarily permitted. So in a sense, if you like, if you want to think about it that way, it's almost like saying that it's intervention by invitation, but the invitation is given prior to the conflict arising. It's given when you join onto the African Union um, um, itself. Um, so, so that's one argument, right? So you can explain it in terms of treaty rules that you know every state is free to give up rights, including the rights that it might have under the UN Charter. Um, the one problem with that, of course, is that if you accept that the prohibition on the use of force is use Kogan's, um, then you might also accept uh, that you cannot voluntarily give up rights that are granted under use Kogan's norms, that a treaty that derogates from a use Kogan's norm as this would be would then um, be, in terms of Article 53, um, invalid. And it was a very interesting question whether or not this particular provision would invalidate um, the whole of the AU considered fact, I don't think so, but it would be a very interesting question, Um, um, especially in light of the ongoing debate um, in the International Law Commission on use cogens. It's also possible, right? so as a second theory, and this is the theory that I generally, uh, myself, incline myself towards. Is that it's possible to sort of see um, the African to see any African Union intervention which has yet to take place uh, at least on military intervention by the African Union yet uh, but it's possible to see it as implicitly authorized by the UN Security Council so again it's not without its problems but at least it's sort of a theory if you would decide to go along with a theory one would have to study very carefully the provisions of um, chapter 8 of the Charter um, and here I will refer you to article 52 of the UN Charter and you should have a look at article 52 of the UN Charter um, which provides for a role for regional um, entities and regional organizations like the African Union but there are some qualifiers, right so if you look at article 52 it says as appropriate for regional action so you should ask yourself is intervention, is military intervention appropriate for regional action? Right? So that's, that stands to be reason. Um, um, the other qualifier in Article 52 is if it is consistent with the purpose and principles of the UN Charter. What is one of the purpose and principles of the UN Charter? Article 2.4. So again, um, so there's a role if that role is consistent with Article 2.4. These are questions, of course, um, 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 that would be asked for anybody... Proposing this particular theory of why the African Union is entitled um, to intervene, perhaps the, the the most difficult qualifier, if you like, would be Article 53, paragraph one of the UN Charter. And if you have a look at Article 53, paragraph one of the UN Charter, it essentially provides that no enforcement action shall be taken under regional agency without the authorization of the United Nations. Right, so. This again would seem to preclude. Uh, this again would seem to preclude the possibility of this kind of an interpretation of an implicit, um, 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 uh, of an implicit authorization. So the implicit authorization would essentially be: we can act until such time as the UN says you can't act. Right. Uh, whereas this provision says no. You. You. It seems to say no. You must first wait for the Security Council to say that you may act. So that's, you know, I mean, it's an interesting legal question. Um, of course, we know that interpretation of treaties, and the UN Charter is a treaty, um, is subject to all kinds of rules, um, you know, including practice subsequent to the adoption of the treaty. And what's very interesting is that um, so South Africa has served on the Security Council twice, and in both times that it served on the Security Council, it made this particular issue of the relationship between the United Nations Security Council and the African Union peace architecture. It's sort of primary focus, right? So in the first time around in 2007 to 2008, um, there was a presidential statement that was adopted. Um, In um, its last stint on the UN Security Council 2011-2012, there was a UN Security Council resolution adopted. UN Security Council resolution, I believe it's 2033. Um, What is interesting about that, that particular resolution is that there, the council, and it is the council speaking, right? So although the initial proposal, of course, is drafted by the African states, it's the council speaking. The council recognizes the important role and function of, and it uses the phrase, regional organizations, in particular the African Union, in the maintenance in of international peace and security, right? So that role is recognized. Um, that role is recognized. It is true that while that role is recognized, the resolution also emphasizes that the U.N Security Council remains the primary body for the maintenance of international peace and security. But all of these things, the fact that you have you've had Article 4H since uh, 2002, you've had this resolution, you haven't had a single state saying Article 4H is invalid. You haven't had the council adopting a presidential statement saying Article 4H, that might suggest that the relationship between the African Union and the UN Security Council has actually, by virtue of practice and a common understanding between these organizations, moved beyond Chapter 8 to a point where um, the African Union might legitimately be entitled to intervene until such time as told not to intervene by the UN Security Council. Um, This of course is only the beginning of the story. Um, The full story is yet to be written and we don't know what the final outcome will be, but it is an interesting legal question that I would hope you would keep your eye on. Thank you very much. I hope you have learned a lot from the lecture and I also hope you have enjoyed it. Thank you.